Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Uh, And if you are taking notes today, the title of my message is The Four Ofs. The four ofs. Um, I had, uh, have and had this, this quirk that I didn't realize was a quirk until I went to college. I, I wonder if you were just sort of being yourself and you went off and you moved to a new place or went to a new school or uh, sort of made some new friends and the thing that seemed so normal to you seemed crazy to them. And I had this moment when I went off to college and I sat down for breakfast in the morning like I normally do and ordered just a normal person's breakfast, right? Um, I got uh, eggs, bacon, and a Diet Coke um, <laughs> like normal people. How many of you have ever uh, had a Diet Coke or a Diet Beverage for breakfast? Have you in here? Yeah, exactly. Uh, my people, <laughs> okay? I thought this was normal. I thought this was a basic thing. Uh, I realized really quickly as I cracked open a Diet Coke and started drinking it before uh, my first class in college, first week, everybody that I was making friends with was like, it was, they thought it was the weirdest thing ever, right? Coffee made sense to them, orange juice made sense to them, a smoothie with 3,000 calories of sugar in there made sense to them, but a Diet Coke, that's crazy! And um, so I was sitting there drinking it, and I'm just like, guys, this is normal, this is not weird. And they're like, it is weird, you are weird. And they held this position until... Um, I took a bunch of my friends with me home for fall break and stayed the night at my parents' house. The next morning we woke up, my mom made us this big breakfast and my friends sat down to breakfast with my family and uh, like we prayed for breakfast and then all of a sudden like you just heard this like symphony of <laughs> like everybody popping the top of their Diet Cokes and Diet Pepsis. And my friends were looking around and they're like, oh, like suddenly it all came into focus. They got, they're like, oh, this is like, this is normal to you because of where you came from. And I wonder if you have ever had this experience with somebody else where you, you sort of, you saw this trait that they had and you thought it was really weird and then you met their family and it made complete sense this thing that you had no context for, suddenly when you met the people they came from, you're like, oh, I get it now. I get it. Oh, everybody in your family is loud and talks fast. I just thought you were angry all the time (laughs) or maybe on cocaine. I didn't know. I didn't know. But it's like now that I've spent time with your family, it's just how you guys do. And I get it. You were sort of brought up this way. Now I get why you always say like, I'm a hugger. Okay. Because when you, when I went to meet your family, they were just like, hey, How are you? It was like a receiving line at a wedding, and I've never met these people before, and now I smell all of their perfume and deodorant on my shirt for the rest of the day. I get it. Like, you came from this. You know, I only only went to dinner with your mom one time, and the first five minutes was enough to let me know why you were now uh, so sensitive to criticism. I get it. I get it. (laughs) Once I met that woman, I was like, oh, wow. This is why sometimes when people are like, hey, maybe fix this, you're like, yeah, and you break up because you were sort of bred in this sort of environment. And the reason this happens to all of us is that a big part of who you become is shaped by where you come from. 
And a lot of us, we want to sort of discount this in our life because maybe we're not excited about where we're from, but we have this fascination of where we're from because we know that it says something about who we currently are, whether we want it to or not. This is why we're fascinated with people's histories and origins and backstories. It's why when we meet people, uh, we impulsively ask them, like, so where are you from? We want to know because we understand that it's going to inform some of who they have become now. It's why we map our family trees. It's why we, uh, we, we, we mail our spit in a vial to a company to tell us our ancestry and where we came from because we are interested in our roots, in our origins. We understand that our backstory has something to do with the story we're living now. We hope that it's going to give us clues to maybe who we're on our way to becoming. It's also why I think so many of us, especially in our current culture, are wrestling with questions of like, who am I? Like, like why do I have these certain desires? Was I made this way? Is, this, is everything just a social construct? Like, which of my impulses should I embrace? And which of these impulses maybe would I be better off evolving past and fighting against? These are all questions that have something in common. They are of questions because we want to know what we're of. This is a natural part of being human. Of is where, it's about where we come from and how we define home. And of imprints on you in ways that you're not always even aware of. This is why therapy, if you go to therapy, it often begins with, so tell me about how you grew up. Let's talk about your mother, right? Like, how were you raised? The reason it begins here is because where you are of and what you are of communicates a lot about how you got to where you are. And if you've ever been through this process where you begin sort of analyzing and looking back, you realize that, that for a lot of us, unpacking the past can lead to epiphanies about the present. And what some of us realize is that we are running from our past, and others of us realize that we are repeating it over and over again. And maybe for some of us that's a good thing, and maybe for others of us it's not. But I will tell you this, it is almost impossible to understand your identity, your purpose, and your longings without starting with of. Like when you're not clear of what you're of, instead of living from something, you often live in response to. We live in response to what others expect of us or like about us or hate about us or find confusing about us. We try on different versions of ourselves. We're trying to feel, figure out where we fit in uh, just so we can feel halfway normal and maybe please the people around us and have peace with them by conforming to them. And I think when you do this, when you live in response to, instead of living from who you really are, you end up living somebody else's life. And some of us, we have these midlife crises or quarter life crises where we realize that we have been living somebody else's life, that we are not at all ourselves, that we don't even know who we are or where we came from or what we want to be or or like what our life is ultimately about. And it becomes a scary moment for a lot of people. I think this is also why we often settle for, for surface level interactions, attempting to sort of keep everything light and casual. 
You know, we, we allow our conversation to stay at the level of like, so, you know, how's it going? Did you see the game? Big gulps, huh? Well, see you later. You know what I mean? It's just all surface stuff. And we never end up getting to the questions that, that we really, really want to know. Questions of who is God and, and who am I? And I would argue that these are the two most important questions that every person eventually has to answer. Who is God and who am I? And this is ultimately what the first section of Scripture was written to help us wrestle with. Because the beginning of the Bible is about how we begin. It's, it's our origin story. But not in the way that you might think. Like this, the ancient piece of poetry that opens the story of us isn't really a scientific explanation of anything. It's answering bigger existential questions about who we are and what we're made for. It's trying to tell us what we are of. And this is so significant that even though this portion of scripture is arguably the smallest, right? It's only two chapters of the book of Genesis, why it is its own movement entirely. And this is what we're going to unpack together as we look at the first movement of God's story and of ours, the movement of, of. And we're going to begin at the beginning. It sounds like a logical place, right? Genesis 1, 1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what we see here is that the entire cosmos and all of its inhabitants were spoken into existence by God, um, except one, humans. Instead, God takes the time to handcraft humans out of the dust and he breathes life into their lungs. And what I find interesting about this as we read through the story of Genesis is that everything in existence comes from God's voice except us. We come from his lungs. We come from his breath. We come from deep inside him. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God formed a man from the dust, breathed life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. In other words, and this is the first of that I want to submit to you this morning, you were made by God in the image of God. This is the first thing that you need to know about what you are of. This is the first thing, in fact, that God wants you to know about who you are. And this may come as a shock to some of you because I think a lot of us are under the impression that the first thing God wants us to know about ourselves is that we are horrible, sinful people and God is mostly angry with us and ashamed of us and disappointed in us. But that's not how this story goes. Like what God used to form your identity originally was his own divinity. Like at your core, you are a reflection of God's perfection. His fingerprints are all over your life. His very breath is what animates your life. And it's why no matter what happens to you, um, there remains in you this intuitive knowing of God and longing for God deep inside you. And when you are at your best, it's because his likeness is what you are leaning into in that moment. And it feels right. Right? You, in those moments, you feel alive, you feel centered, you feel at peace, you feel fulfilled like yourself because you are in tune 
with who you are made to be because you are enacting what you are of. And this is why scripture starts here because to know who you are requires you to know who you are of. And ultimately, you are of God. The story goes on to say, in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, that God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, this, this is a strange sentence. Like, you notice all the, the plural pronouns that are happening in here? And you're like, is this a misprint? What is happening? Like, let us, our, us. And here's what this is, is telling us. This is giving us clues about the second thing that we are of. And it's this, that you were made by a community for life in a community. And this is sort of a mind-blowing concept that we see unfolding in the very first few pages of Scripture that God existed in a community from the beginning all by himself. Confusing, right? It's a little bit of a mind-blowing thought. Wait, 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 he's by himself? Yep, yep. But also not. And there's a whole community there. Okay, there's a whole community. So there's, there's multiple things. Now, there's just one thing, God. But in, you know, three different persons. But also they're the same. But not. The theological term here is Trinity. And um, the Greeks nicknamed the dynamic... Um, gave this nickname to the dynamic that essentially means the, the fluid, mutual, indwelling, and intersecting of more than one person. It's where we get the, the word choreography. And the Trinity has long been said to exist in sort of this divine dance, this loving, giving, ongoing, dynamic relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one, unique, distinct, and yet unified. And maybe you're thinking like, that's great. That I, I'm never gonna understand that. But what does that have to do with me? And here's why I bring this up. All of us are of this us. This is where we come from. Like community is encoded in your DNA. You were created for deep relationships, not just self-discovery, uh, self-advancement, or self-preservation. This is why like, no one has to tell you, like, you should make friends. Because there is this deep desire inside of you to want to make friends, to want to fall in love. This is imprinted on you since the beginning. These desires come pre-installed. You can't help but long for them. And the reason you are this way, the reason you have this deep desire to be deeply interconnected with other people is because God is this way. Because God is a community unto himself, and you reflect him. And this is why Jesus uh, is able in the New Testament to sum up all of the Old Testament, everything about life in this very simple way. He says this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And when Jesus says these things, he's not just summarizing the whole Old Testament. He's summarizing the meaning of life. He's saying, like, do you want to live a full, fulfilling life? Devote yourself wholeheartedly to relationships. And this is very much a description of life in the garden. 
In fact, Adam and Eve weren't even aware of how intuitive and effortless their relationship was with God and each other in the garden. In fact, it doesn't occur to to them, either one of them, how easy and effortless their relationships just sort of flowed and functioned until they moved. Until they left the garden and had a different experience entirely. In Eden, they just clicked. There was no drama, no insecurity, no arguments. Instead, it tells us something different about their experience. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 says this. The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Naked. Just all the time. Now, think about this for a minute. I mean, not too much, but um, (laughs) walking around eating lunch, gardening, horseback riding over rough terrain, just all naked. Like initially, you're just like, a man and his wife just being naked all the time. That sounds great. Until you start thinking of all the activities, and then you're like, oh, it's getting less sexy the more I think about it. Like I never thought I would say this, but it's almost too much nudity, right? At a certain point, it's just like, you know what? Certain activities were not meant to be seen naked. It's just, it's gross, it's, it's not right. It makes me feel uncomfortable. But, you know, I think it brings up this important question, like, what does naked really mean here? Because, again, this is a piece of poetry. And what we discover as we dig a little bit deeper is that this isn't really as much a reference to nudity as it is a reference to vulnerability. It's a metaphor for being real and honest and completely yourself without being worried about how you're going to be perceived or thought of. It's absolute freedom from fear, judgment, or rejection. It's saying that these two people existed in a place together in which they were entirely and utterly themselves, in which they could be themselves, and there was this confidence that exuded who they were, and there wasn't a twinge of insecurity in them. There wasn't an ounce of worry about how the other person was perceiving them or would think of them. There wasn't a fear of rejection. Some of us, we can't even comprehend what this would feel like. Think about this in your own life. When was the last time that you unapologetically shared what you were really feeling with someone without the fear of misinterpretation? Like, when was the last time that you looked in the mirror at your body out of the shower and you were entirely, completely at peace with where it was at right now in your 40s? (laughs) Here's what's crazy. I I think if we pulled the room, and we're going to start here. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now, I think if we were to pull the room, we'd find that, like, for some of us, we've never had moments like this. Not that we can remember. Maybe when we were younger, but it's, it's so long ago, we can't even really wrap our, our brain around it. And here's what this part of the story is trying to tell us we're of. You were made to thrive in relational vulnerability. Like, in the garden, hum- humanity was completely comfortable with vulnerability. Shame wasn't even a part of our vocabulary. We didn't have any concept of it. It's hard to imagine because it's not the way that things are now. It's not the way that our lives work now. 
Somewhere along the way, though, we lost the amazement of the human body and we replaced it with objectification and sexualization. We lost the courage to be open and transparent with each other. But even though you've lost the ability to do something, if it's what you are actually of, you don't lose your desire for it. And so it still sits there below the surface, and yet we don't know how to get access to it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the story goes on to say, God placed the man in the garden to tend and watch over it. He, in, he formed all the animals and birds, and he brought them to the man, instructing him to choose a name for each. But there was still no helper just right for him. And here's what this is telling us that we're of that you were made to partner together to care for creation. So in other words, in, in this opening story, God creates humans and then immediately puts them to work. And, and when he creates this first human, Adam, in the garden, it's a name that really just means the human, very creative. He doesn't give him busy work to do, but he gives him a purpose to commit himself to. God is like, listen, I have a job for you. Uh, and Adam's like, this, that sounds great. Um, he's like, I want you to be a gardener. And he's like, awesome. What's a garden? Uh, I'm new. <laughs> and God was like, a garden, it's, it's where you, that's where you are right now. You're, you're, in a, you're in a garden. And he's like, I love it. How do you garden? And he's like, basically, you just take care of where you live. Because gardening is, is really a, a poetic metaphor here. And this is what I, I hope that you can see about where you are of. Like, we are all here to garden. Ultimately, we are all here to take care of where we live, our family, our community, the earth. And what I think is so profound about the opening part of this, this story, God's story, our story, is that it's not like God needed Adam's help. I mean, the guy was literally a pile of dirt like two days ago, okay? <laughs> and sometimes we're just like, man, God's really fortunate that I decided to help him. You think God needs your help? God can do anything he wants without you. It's just that he doesn't want to do much without you. Why? Because God is communal and he craves partnership. And we are communal. And we crave partnership. It's what we're of. And the good news about this means that whatever you do, regardless of what that is, you can find a deep sense of purpose in doing it with and for God. Some of the most simple, mundane, not flashy, not interesting on Instagram work can be enormously fulfilling if you realize that you are doing it with and for God. And yet, our design isn't just to partner with God, but to partner with each other. I want you to listen to this. This is Genesis chapter one, verse 27. It says this. God created human beings, plural, in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it and reign over its inhabitants. So these first two humans are given a goal and they are told to accomplish it together. Now, some of you are thinking like, well, 
that's cool. Obviously, the man was the boss and the woman was his secretary, okay? Because, you know, there are certain jobs that only boys can do and certain jobs that only girls, you know, should do because that's the way it's supposed to be. But here's what I want you to see from these first two chapters of Scripture. In the beginning, there was no hierarchy between men and women. There's a hierarchy. Like, there's a hierarchy between humans and the earth, between humans and animals, but not men and women. God created and commanded Adam and Eve to rule and work together. The command is mutual, and the work is to be shared equally, because when she is created, she is his equal. And I get that this idea can be hard for some of us to to swallow, um, given by the fact that only one person is amening. And I think this is because we hold certain assumptions um, that are sort of like deeply ingrained that affects how we read some of these verses. And I I just want to like address a couple of these. One is like we assume that like Adam came before Eve and so that means he's in charge. It just feels like that's natural, right? You go, you you know, I was was here first so I get shotgun. You know what I mean? That's how (laughs) it goes, right? But... This doesn't entirely make sense because if order determined authority, then humans would be ruled by cats and sharks and woodchucks because they were all created first. And I refuse to take direction from a woodchuck. (laughs) I don't care how much people insist upon it. I'm not doing it. We also assume that like since Eve is referred to as Adam's helper, that makes her like his assistant or like his intern or his housekeeper or, you know, probably some combination of all three with different outfits. But the definition of this word in Hebrew, this is the actual definition in Hebrew, to rescue or to save and strength. Like to give you context, this word appears 21 times in the Old Testament, twice in reference to Eve three times in reference to the military, and 16 times in reference to God himself. Why would you put this word here in this context? It appears that the author wants us to see that Eve reflects God by rescuing and saving Adam from isolation, strengthening him for the work that God gave them to accomplish together. Unlike Um, because unlike God, Adam isn't really a community unto himself. It isn't until God partners him with Eve that humanity can actually fully reflect its maker. Now, when we look at all of these things together, these four ofs, they essentially tell us this, that you were created, each of us, in the image of God to live with purpose and at peace with him and others. Which is why when we stumble through life and we have no idea why we're here and we can't figure out a purpose to any of our actions or existence, we feel off, we feel lost. It's why when we don't understand that the imprint of God is on us, we we feel lost. We don't understand like what life is about or for. It's why when we don't have a sense of peace in our soul that we are at peace with God why it bothers us so much, because that's what we're made for. It's why when something gets between us and the immediate community that surrounds us, 
why that frustrates us, why it bothers us, why we, why we want things to gel and be cohesive, why we want people to get us and understand us, because this is what we are of. And what we are shown in these first couple chapters of Genesis is that life in the garden was God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it looks like. The air was thick with the presence and the peace of God. It was an existence without fear or anxiety or insecurity or loneliness or poverty or pain. There was nothing to separate creation from a close connection with its creator. This is what you came from. This is what you are of. And there's part of us that is always trying to get back there. It's imprinted on us. This is why the, the thought of a life this way makes our souls ache. Some, some theologians describe it as homesickness for a place that you're not even sure you've ever been. One wisdom writer says it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11, that God has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, we can't quite see the scope of his work from beginning to end. In other words, like as you grow up and as you develop as a human, you get this sense that you're part of a bigger story, but you, you have trouble seeing how. Because we can tell that something's off, that the world isn't as it should be, like the larger story has somehow drifted off course, we feel lost. We're, we, we have this deep hope that we will someday find our way home to where we're of. And it's why sometimes you don't feel like yourself. It's why sometimes it feels like maybe the world is not your home because you aren't always yourself and, and the world really isn't your home as it is right now. But this is the good news the more you invest in your relationship with God, the more you become your true self because he is who you're of. And this is why we talk so much about leaning in to time with God because when you find him, you see yourself. Because when you understand who God is, who you are comes into focus because that is what you are of. And so how do we do that? I wanna just give you sort of a basic baby step in this direction. This week, I wanna challenge you to identify something that you say to yourself that conflicts with what God says about you. And then I want you to tell someone who loves both you and God and ask them to help you align your view of yourself with his. I would say that like, and this is why you need uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to sort of gather around you and be a part of your life because we all have these ways in which who we were designed to be has gotten out of alignment with who we have come to be or how we've come to see ourselves. And oftentimes we can't really shake out of that on our own. We need outside help. We need mentors. We need people in a small group to come alongside us. We need teachers. We need pastors. We need other people to help us realign with who and what we are of. And I would tell you that in order to become who you really are, you're gonna have to work at it because it's not as easy as it once was. 
And you've noticed this, right? Relationships take a whole lot more work now than they did in the garden. We can't just sort of like walk around naked and vulnerable and feel completely connected and confident at all times. It's not how our world functions anymore. We no longer exist in this pure state of of. Of is just where the story begins, but it's not where it currently is and it's not ultimately how it ends. But before we move on to what's next and the weeks to come, I want you to wrestle with this question in your own soul. How might your life be better if you were more aware of who you were of moment to moment? One, I think there would be a lot less guilt for drinking Diet Coke for breakfast. I just wanna throw that out there. (laughs) But I think more importantly, I think walking around moment to moment knowing the deeper answer to the question, who are you of, I think would revolutionize the way that you saw yourself. I think that it would change the way that you experience life. I think it would transform the way other people experience you. I wonder if you were able to focus in on a little bit each day on the fact that the image of God was imprinted on your soul, that the breath of your creator is in your lungs, that you were handcrafted by the creator. That although he spoke everything into existence, you were important enough for him to put his fingerprints on you, for him to get close enough in an act of intimacy to breathe into you a bit of himself. I think if you were to walk around with this awareness every day, I think if you were to carry this into your friendships, into your workplace, if you were to carry this into your parenting style, if you were to carry this into the sort of neighbor that you are, it would transform the way you live and the way that people around you receive you. The reason why we start with of is because it is the clearest picture of where we began and ultimately where God wants to take us all in the end. The reason you long for this sense of home is because you are meant to return there, to be completely connected with who you are of. And I wanna pray this into your life today. Would you bow your heads across this room God, as we begin this series of unpacking your word, what you have given to us to understand who you are and who we are, God, I pray that it would awaken within us a deep sense of self. And some of us, we struggle so much with who we are. We don't see your image when we look in the mirror. We don't see your image when we look deep inside of ourselves. We see brokenness, we see damage, we see insecurity, we see hurt. Some of us, when we think about who we are, what we are filled with is not a sense of gratitude and excitement and anticipation and adventure. We don't get a glimpse of the divine. We see something that brings up hate and hurt within us.
This is not your heart. This is not how you designed us to be. God, although we realize we are not currently living in the land of of, but it's still inside us. It still calls to us. It's still in there. And God, I pray that as we look to your word, that it will become, like the New Testament says, a mirror that reflects who we are and who we were meant to be back to us. And we get this strong sense that you are with us, that you are for us, that you made us, that we have a purpose, that we can be at peace with you, that we can be at peace with each other, that we can live at peace with ourselves. God, I pray that as we look into your word, we get a glimpse of how you made us to be all along, that all the junk that has clung to us and sought to define us will begin to peel away and drift off and become a thing of the past. And God, that as we look to you to define us, we would see your reflection in our mirror. We would see your reflection in our words, in our eyes, in our body, in our giftings, in our abilities. God, that we would see you in us. And God, that we would return to you. And then in doing so, God, we would bring heaven to earth in our every moment, in our every day, through our every breath, through our every activity, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, that we would be your agents leaning into who you are and your identity. And God, we would pull our earth towards heaven. God, that we would become closer day by day to returning to that garden state in which we know who we are, in which we are not afraid of vulnerability, in which we stand tall, in which we are at peace, in which we are connected to our purpose, and in which we go forward knowing we are whole and at home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, Help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.